you expound God and his greatness and you just like unpack the whole Old Testament, right? And God and his goodness and you unpack the whole New Testament. But as I was thinking this week, God and his greatness has all power, all might. He is sovereign over everything, everyone, all the time. And God and his goodness is extending his love and grace and faithfulness to his people because he is good, not because we are good. And I was thinking how that simple truth that we pray with our children over a meal is, is often neglected for the rest of our lives because if we really think that God is all-powerful and all, uh, has all power, all might, and, and is, has all authority over all things, we wouldn't do certain things, right? We wouldn't uh, sin. I mean, that's what, in essence, sin and rebellion is not trusting that God is all-powerful, not trusting that God is all-sovereign, not trusting that God has ultimate authority over everyone and everything all the time. And if we trusted that God was good, we wouldn't uh, try to take matters into our own hands thinking that we know better than God. Think about how we do this in various ways. Maybe it's uh, as simple as as, um, uh, something in an interpersonal relationship. You're not trusting God's goodness to you in that relationship. Or uh, maybe it's a financial struggle. Or maybe it's, uh, you know, something uh, within uh, your community. Or even in a more cosmic level, how we often don't trust God to, um, to save us. Often we don't trust that God is the one who is redeeming us because we think, well, if God was going to redeem me, if God had all the power to redeem me, he would have changed me by now. It would be better than this, right? If God was really good, uh, then maybe I wouldn't have to suffer in this area or maybe things wouldn't be so hard. I mean, if God was good, maybe this illness would not afflict my family or maybe this struggle would not affect this relationship, And so, in our brokenness as humans, we often fail to trust God's greatness, and we fail to trust his goodness because we want to take matters into our own hands, even spiritually, by saying, you know what? God could never love a sinner like me. I got to clean myself up. I got to do better than this. I got to try harder because I'm just never going to amount to anything in God's eyes unless I get X, Y, and Z in order. And friends, I've been there. I think many of us in this room have been there. Maybe you're there right now. And at the end of the day, that is failing to understand that God is great and God is good. God is great. He can save you. He can love a sinner like you. God has the power and the authority to redeem you. And in his goodness, he is redeeming you. The beauty of the gospel is that because God has all power and authority to work things according to his will, and out of his goodness he extends grace and love toward wayward people, we are transformed. We have a new identity. Over the past several weeks, we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and today we close out the first chapter of Ephesians, and we'll pick up chapter two in January after the Advent series. And what we have seen through the whole first chapter is that the Apostle Paul is writing to uh, a Christian church in Ephesus. Uh, The city was uh, about 200,000 people right, about the size of Augusta's population, and they were, uh, had a great commerce, great spirituality, had great religious cultural tradition, um, and pagan traditions, and uh, it was a thriving economic port city. And Paul is writing to this first century church that has uh, this pagan spirituality and has uh, some um, uh, traditional Judaism uh, put in there and then they have the the Roman Empire that's you know all over that part of the known world and Paul is writing to them saying your identity is no longer defined on uh, where you live your identity is no longer defined by the traditions of your past whether they be good or bad 
Your identity is no longer defined by what business you run or your standing in the community of Ephesus. Your identity is defined not by the sins of your past or the idols of your present. Your identity is defined by the person and work of Jesus Christ. That truth, 2,000 years ago, rings true for us today. Your identity is no longer defined by the sins of your past, by the struggles of your present, no longer defined by the cultural or traditional upbringing you came from or what city you call home. Your identity is defined by who Jesus is and what he's done for you. And that's good news. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's greatness and goodness toward his people. In today's passage, as we close out the first chapter, we have a lot of overlaps in the verses we've seen over the past several weeks of, uh, of Paul saying, look, you have this identity in Christ. In Christ you are adopted. In Christ you are beloved. In Christ you are chosen. In Christ you are holy and blameless. In Christ you are faithful saints. In Christ uh, you are redeemed. You are forgiven. We get to verse 15. For this reason, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. What we mentioned last week is that is your faith, your belief, your ongoing relational trust in Jesus is expressed in the context of community, love for the saints. If you have faith in Christ, you will love other people. You can't have faith in Christ and not love other saints. And if you want to love other saints, you have to have belief in Christ. That's what he says in verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. All the saints. I love that. Not the saints you like, but just all the saints, right? Faith, ongoing relational trust, and love, this this, uh, covenant-keeping relational uh, context that happens when we trust the faithfulness of God. And so... The next couple verses, Paul lays out here kind of what this looks like. It is a new identity of being adopted, faithful saints, beloved, um, chosen, redeemed, forgiven, holy and blameless. All of this context for us happens in the context of community, relationship with one another. Belief in Jesus, love for the saints. And Paul uses a few words here to describe what this community is called. The church and the body of Christ. In verse 20 thing, uh, 20 thing, 22, I'm making up new numbers. <clears throat> he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. All right, so as we talk about what it means to be the church and to be the body of Christ, as we, as Redemption Church, a, a young, small, newish-ish church, In Augusta, Georgia, we are looking, what does it mean to be the body, to be the church, to be the gathered, redeemed, forgiven, adopted, chosen, beloved, faithful saints? And I want to tell you a few things from this passage today, just uh, as we pry into our hearts a little bit. God's sovereignty and authority over everyone and everything all the time is expressed, his greatness and goodness is expressed through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And by the work of the Holy Spirit, this truth is confirmed in our hearts with a new identity, a new gathering of people. The first thing I want us to see here is that God's authority is inherent so we can trust God as our Father. God's authority is inherent so we can trust God as our Father. Verse 17, Paul says, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks to you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. 
Right? Paul says the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. Those are two uh, big words that we can't gloss over. When Paul says, look, the God, I mean, you got to think in the first century, there were multiple gods. There were multiple idols all over uh, the, the Roman Empire of the God for this, the God for that, the God for that. Every town had their own God. I mean, uh, Ephesus had a huge uh, temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world of the day, right? And had a very deep spiritual uh, culture of idolatry. And so Paul doesn't say a God. He says the God. The God. Right? There is one God who has ultimate authority. And his authority is inherent because he is God. That same God is the God who created everything out of nothing. At the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1 begins with, in the beginning, God. Right? So God has ultimate authority because he created everything. He made everything out of nothing. He made everyone. Sinner and saint alike. Christian and non-Christian alike. Ephesian and American alike. And out of God's greatness and out of his goodness, he's extending his authority and love to his people. Paul calls him the God, but also says the Father of glory. Now, I love that statement as he's referring to God as the Father of glory. You know, glory uh, time and time again throughout the Old Testament is, is used to describe God's dwelling presence with his people. We know ultimately God's dwelling presence with his people happened in the person and work of Jesus, who is God incarnate living on earth with his people. And Paul says, look, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory. This refers to the God of the Old Testament, the God of all creation. If you look in Acts chapter 7, There's a great speech by Stephen who is laying out all of redemptive history of God extending his faithfulness to his people through Abraham, through Moses, through Israel. And he says that God is the God of glory. So in the same way, Paul is saying, look, all authority is God's. God's authority is inherent because he's God. And because he's God, we can trust him as our father And we have a hard time trusting God as our Father because we are broken people. But time and time again, God extends his greatness and his goodness to his people because he is their Father, which is why Paul says in chapter 1 at the very beginning, he says, look, you are saints, you are faithful, grace to you, peace to you from God, our Father. And a couple verses later says, look, you have been chosen and adopted. But secondly, Paul is writing here saying, look, the, the authority of God is sovereign uh, God is authority, God's authority is inherent because he's God. We can trust him as our father. But secondly, Jesus' authority is redemptive. So we can trust Jesus as our savior. You see, just as Paul says in verse 17, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation. He goes on to say in verse 20 about this God that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over to head over all things to the church. Now, I love this verse here because what we're seeing is Paul is writing not only about, uh, you know, the God 
the Father of glory, but he's also writing about Jesus because what would happen in the first century if you're walking down the street and you're seeing multiple gods, you're seeing idols here, idols there, you're seeing Artemis and all these other gods, and even the emperor was being worshipped as a god, you're saying, okay, well, maybe Jesus is another god. Maybe there is another god out there. Maybe it's okay. And actually, it was very common in the first century to incorporate Jesus into your uh, plethora of gods that you would worship. It was very common. It was actually uh, okay in some spiritual practices. They say, look, you know, you believe that Artemis is a god, Zeus, Jesus, yeah, it's all good. But what Paul is saying is like, look, there, there is one God, there is one Father, but also here's where Jesus comes in. We have God the Father whose authority is inherent because he's God, he's the creator of all things, everyone, everywhere, all the time. But then Jesus' authority is redemptive. Now, now follow me on this because this is something we can't miss uh, or we miss it all. <laughs> Jesus' authority is redemptive. That's why we trust him as our Savior. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection all have a role to play in our salvation. Jesus lived a perfect life we should live but can't. So he lived his righteous life in our place and gives us his righteousness. He died a death that we should have died as a sacrifice. And in so doing, he takes away our sin and guilt. But it doesn't end there. We don't only have the uh, righteousness that's given to us because Jesus lived a perfect life and we also have the forgiveness that's given to us because he died as a substitute. But, but Paul makes it clear, the truth that Jesus rose again from the dead and has been seated at the right hand of God the Father. In verse 20, you see that. He says, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, what that's often called to is that we have the ascension and the exaltation of Christ is what that means. That, that Jesus was raised from the dead and seated next to God the Father. And this is a powerful statement, especially in the first century, because what this is meaning is, is so Jesus is, is equal with God. Now, as Christians, we know that's true because Jesus is God. And so it's okay for us to say that, but if you can transport yourself into the first century when you're seeing like a plethora of God and you have like Zeus over here and then other gods beneath him and demigods over here and this thing over here and this emperor over here, there's kind of this hierarchy of gods. And so when Paul is writing to this uh, spiritually idolatrous, saturated culture in Ephesus, he's saying, look, Jesus is equal with the God of creation, the Father of glory. He is seated at his right hand. That's a powerful statement. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father because Jesus is God's uh, son Jesus is God incarnate, and Jesus' authority is redemptive, meaning he is the way that we have been chosen, that we have been blessed, that we have been adopted, that we have been made holy and blameless, that we have been made faithful saints, that we have been redeemed. Now, it may be common for you and I if we, maybe tomorrow you'll go to work and you're having a conversation around the water cooler, or if you go to school and on your lunch break you're having a meal with a fellow student, and you guys start talking about, well, how do I know that Jesus is God? And do I really have to believe that Jesus is God to, you know, be saved? Or do I have to trust Jesus for who he is? I mean, how come I can't just say, yeah, I believe in God? That's a very common thing. I believe in, yeah, everybody believes in God. I believe in God. How it connects here is, if you believe in the true God, the Father of glory, you, you have to embrace the redemptive plan that he put into motion to save us from sin, to 
change us from our broken state to, to being healed and whole again. That happens only in the person and work of Jesus. Now, here's what's great, too, is in the first century, there's the Roman Empire. And folks are saying, all right, we're, we're not really sure how we feel about this Roman Empire. There were little revolts here and there, political schisms right and left, and people are revolting against the Roman Empire, right? I mean, pagan people just saying, hey, this ain't cool, we don't like the Roman Empire, and they're revolting against it. And so you have this politically charged climate where the Roman Empire is coming in and saying, here's all your gods, you can worship any god you want as long as you worship Caesar as well. And then Paul says, wait a second, there's only one god, one father of glory, and his son Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is our savior, not Rome. Jesus has all authority, all dominion. Now this is a I mean, this would be a dangerous letter to write and read in the first century politically. But Paul's not only writing to a a spiritually idolatrous culture, he's not only writing in a politically charged climate, he's also writing against the backdrop of Old Testament promises. All of the Old Testament that is pointing to Jesus, that is affirming time and time again that God is great and that God is good. That God in his greatness will and can uh, redeem and save and rescue his people, and that God in his goodness chooses to lovingly, graciously rescue them. So when Paul writes in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. If you were a Jewish or religious person in the first century, this would echo the words of Daniel, chapter 7, hundreds of years before the time of Christ, when the prophet saw a vision, said, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days that was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, Paul is writing the good news for those who are expecting God to rescue his people politically, religiously, temporally, and eternally. Paul is writing saying, look, that expectation of a Messiah to come, a Christ, someone who is going to come be the rescuer and savior of God's people, that is coming true in the person and work of Jesus. God's authority is inherent because he's God, he's creator, he's the father of glory, he's the one who has rescued his children for all generations, and he's giving that power, that control, that might, that glory to his son Jesus, who has all authority, all dominion, all power, all rule. Psalm 110.1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Again in Psalm 8.6, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands and have put all things under his feet. You see, friends, Jesus is our rescuer, not any political party or Rome. Any government will not rescue you, cannot save you. Any Religious tradition or spirituality cannot and will not save you. Any educational ascent or philosophical framework cannot and will not save you. And friends, let us, let us evaluate what dominates and rules our lives. 
I mean, what gets you going in the morning? What motivates you? Because as you assess that, that is what your idol or God is. Right? When you get up tomorrow morning and you go to work, if you were thinking, I need to climb that ladder so people will approve of me. I need to make that amount of money so that I can achieve some sort of status in in, in this community. Uh, I'm going to get up tomorrow morning. I'm going to try to impress this girl or that guy. I need to get one more degree so I can be legit, finally. And friends, all of us wrestle with that. I wrestle with it every day. What's my motivation? Because if you assess what your motivation is, you'll see who or what really has dominion over your life, who or what really has power and authority in your life. It could be relationships, it could be money, it could be education, it could be job, it could be status. It could be tradition. It could be fear of looking weird in the cultural framework in which you were raised. You're like, well, we've always done this, but you know what? This year we're going to do something different. We'll have a time of challenge in the next couple weeks to do this as a church, to say, hey, look, we've always done Christmas this way, but for this Advent season, we're going to try something a little different. There's more of that to come. What Paul is doing to the first century church is saying, look, you worship God, you know God, God the creator, God the father of glory, and then Jesus his son who has all redemptive authority, rule, and power. This is why Jesus, throughout his life, exhibited this power, this authority. This is why Jesus calmed a storm. Because the authority of nature is not outside of Jesus' power and control. Jesus is God. He controls the weather. Right? This is why Jesus healed the sick and the blind and the lame. It was not only to show that the kingdom of God was at hand, but also just to say, look, Jesus has authority and control over physical illness. This is why Jesus fed thousands of people, because he's saying, look, not only is he teaching them that he is the bread of life, but he's also saying, look, all of your sustenance is, based, is relying on me. This is why Jesus, when he stands before Pilate, facing his execution, can say, you have no authority except which my Father in heaven gives you. Now imagine what would happen if we acted like that. <laughs> If we truly trust that God is great and God is good, that we truly trust that Jesus has this redemptive authority, that we're not going to say, look, I've got to trust uh, the government to do something for me. Or that I have to trust myself to do something for myself. That I have to trust this other person to fill a need that I have in my soul. That I have to trust uh, money to fill a slot in my life so that I'll feel validated as a person. You see, Jesus' reign is sovereign, and it's eternal, and it's based on God's greatness and goodness as creator and a loving father. And Jesus' authority is redemptive, so we can trust Jesus as our savior and rescuer. We no longer have to trust our own goodness. We no longer have to trust our own efforts. But there's a third point I want us to say, is that the, the church's authority is representative so we can trust the Holy Spirit's work in us and through us. And what I mean by that is God's, God the Father, his authority is inherent because he's God. He created everything and everyone. Uh, so he's God, so he has all authority. And Jesus' authority is redemptive. God the Father gives Jesus the authority of all dominion, all rule, all power, both now and forevermore. Amen. And then the church's authority is representative. 
so that we can trust the Holy Spirit work in us and through us. Like, look at verse 19. I may have mentioned this last week. This is like a 200 and something word run-on sentence, so we just kind of have to jump in mid-comma. So, and they don't even have commas in Greek, so it gets really weird. So verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So, so Paul is saying, look, God's immeasurable greatness, his power is given to those who believe, those who have faith, those who have ongoing relational trust in Jesus. God extends that to us in verse 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet, speaking of Jesus, put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I love what Paul is saying here. He says, look, God the Father has inherent authority because he's creator. He's the father of glory. He gives Jesus this redemptive authority so we can trust him as our savior and rescuer. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. Now, those two statements there are the uh, identity we have is the gathered, redeemed, uh, Church means a gathering. Church means uh, those who've been collected together, those who've been uh, gathered by God, redeemed by Jesus together. Again, we see that, that belief in Jesus results in love toward the saints, that you can't have faith in Christ and be disconnected from other people who have faith in Christ. Like God redeems us in the context of community. We, we are gathered together as the church, Paul says, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all and all. And this is what I love. This is what, this thing, this is what I love about the story of redemption. This is where you and I find our story. Right, the past 20 or so, 30 minutes, I've been rambling about the God of history and Israel and the first century Ephesus. This is where you and I find our story. Because if you're a Christian, you are part of the church, the gathered people of God the body of Christ. This is not something we say, well, wow, I'm sure glad the first century people got confidence from Paul that they're the church. This is for you and I. This is for us. The promises that God as a father extended to Abraham in the Old Testament, extended to the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament, that he extended through Christ to the first century uh, Jews who became Christians, that promise, those promises ring true for me and you today. And we forget that. So when Paul says, you were adopted, you are adopted. You have been forgiven, you've been forgiven. You are to be holy and, and blameless. You are faithful saints, you are blessed in the beloved. That goes for you. Not because you're good, because he's good. Not because you're great, because God's great. Not because you have any authority on your own, but because God has all authority, has given it to Christ, who is over all things. And as the gathered people of God, the, the body of Christ, the church, we experience the fullness of him who fills all in all. I, I love that statement. I mean, I, I camped out on this one statement all week about what does it mean to be his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's a weird statement. Jesus fills all in all. Well, what does that mean? And, and, and the verbiage there can mean a couple things. First, it can, it can mean literally to, to be filled. So like 
as the gathered people of God, we, we, are, we are filled with God's greatness and filled with God's goodness. Not because we're awesome, but because God is great, God is good, and so he gathers us together to, to fill us with his presence. Again, you see the, 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 the Father of glory is what Paul calls God here, and, and we see throughout the Bible, anytime you read God dwelling with his people, was his glory was coming down to rest upon his people. Like when during the Exodus, God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gather my people. I'm going to set them free from bondage. And while they're traveling through bondage, God says, I'm going to come dwell with you for a little bit. His glory hangs out in the tabernacle. They get to Jerusalem. They build a temple. His glory comes down on the temple. We see that Jesus is the full embodiment of God's glory dwelling with his people. And then Paul says, look, the father of glory, God's dwelling presence, will be with his people forever. And who is the recipient of that? The church the body of Christ. And that's good news. This, this should excite you for, for the God of creation and Jesus, the redeemer of, of, of so many people and of so many nations who has all authority. I and mean, he could do anything he wants. He has all authority, all dominion, all rule. And Jesus says, you're one of mine. Now come over here and hang out with my other people. And I'm going to fill this group of people. There's going to be a fullness that's there. It's going to be this glory dwelling and filling up the space. I mean, like light fills up a dark space or like water fills up a dry space. God's presence is filling up a place that is void of his presence. And we are the recipients of that because God is great and God is good. We, we get the benefit of having God's glory dwell with us. Now we're broken. We are broken cisterns, so our water pitchers have leaks in them. It's not perfect, but you can't go anywhere else to get God's filling presence with you. You you just can't. And if we try, we find ourselves even more broken than we were before. We find ourselves not trusting God, not trusting Christ, not trusting the Spirit, not trusting each other, because we say, well, we want to get this fullness. But Scripture tells us that by the authority that's inherent to God and the redemptive authority that Jesus has, there's a representative representational authority that the church experiences is is Christ fills all in all. But there's a second meaning to fullness here that I like. And and the two are related. There's a fullness like water filling a space or light filling a dark space, but there's also fullness of, of fulfillment. Like when God makes a promise, he fulfills his promise. And scripture tells us that the church, the gathered, redeemed people in Christ are the recipients of that fulfillment, that promise. This is why you should read the Old Testament too. Because when you read the Old Testament and God is blessing his people time and time again and saying, look, I'm going to send someone who's going to redeem my people. I'm going to send somebody who's going to change the identity of my people. I'm going to send somebody who's going to rescue my people, set them free from the bondage of sin and death and Satan. I'm going to gather them together and I'm going to call them my people. I'm going to give them a new name, a new identity. They're going to be a new nation, a holy nation. That promise is good for me and you today. And it happens only because of the person and work of Jesus who has redemptive authority. It does not happen because we're smart. It does not happen because we're religious. It does not happen because we, we're do-gooders. It happens in spite of that. That's the irony. As Paul is writing to like a pagan place where there's like drugs, seriously, prostitution, 
all kind of idol worship and corruption. And Paul says, you're gathered together because God is great and God is good. And his spirit will fill you and dwell with you. And he is fulfilling all of his promises in you. That's awesome. That gets me excited. That's good news. So what does this mean for you and I today? What does this mean that God has inherent authority and Jesus has redemptive authority and that the church experiences uh, the authority of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us to, to fill us with the presence of God, to fulfill all of his promises. This means a couple things for you and I today. First, I'd say personally, this should result in ongoing faith. This is why Paul says in verse 15, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints. Right, so there's ongoing relational trust in the Jesus the Christ who has redeemed us, who has rescued us. This means that personally, we trust that our sins have been dealt with, that you are not defined by your past any longer, that you are not defined by the idols of your present. When you wake up tomorrow and, and, and something or someone is wooing you to say, look, find your identity in this job today. Don't buy into it. Say, my identity is in Christ and since Jesus has all authority, he has given me this job. Therefore, I'm going to go to work today. Right? When you wake up tomorrow and say, well, I find my identity in the degree that I have from graduate school. Don't buy into that lie. Say, wow, Jesus has all authority. And by his greatness and goodness, he's given me this opportunity educationally. Therefore, I'm going to live a certain way. Don't find your relationship personally, uh, your identity defined in a relationship. Like, well, I find my identity in the fact that I'm not single or that I am single, or I find my identity that I have a girlfriend or boyfriend, or that I have a spouse or whatever. Now, you wake up tomorrow and say, wow, my identity's in Christ, and by his greatness and goodness, he's given me this relational opportunity. That'll change how your marriage works, gentlemen. If you look at your wife and say, my identity's not found in my wife, but rather my identity's found in Christ, and because God is great and good, he's given me this Amazing opportunity to, to steward the gospel to this, in my case, smoking hot woman. And that's it's a blessing, right? It'll change how you parent your children when you look at them and say, look, I'm not defined by... That's the hard one, man. Let me tell you, when your little kids are like rebelling against you, saying, no, I refuse to get dressed and go to church on time today, that can like wreck your identity if you're like, oh my goodness. I have no power over this kid, but I realize that, that Jesus has all authority and by his grace and sense of humor has given us children that we need to raise in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So personally, we have ongoing relational trust in Jesus. Personally, we have ongoing love toward other believers. Right? That happens because Jesus has all authority and has made it so. Your past is dealt with, your present is, is shaped differently. Your future is secure all because of who Jesus is. Secondly, this shapes who we are as a community of believers because faith happens and not only personally but also in the context of community. So if Jesus, this is what I love, if Jesus is the one who's redeemed us, I mean, I've not redeemed you. You've not redeemed me. Jesus has redeemed all of us. Therefore, we look at each other differently. I can't look at you and say, I don't like you. Well, you know what? You belong to Jesus. He saved you, so I, I'm obligated with joy to love you. You were obligated with joy to love me. Yes, you are. And that's the beauty of it is because you've not redeemed me. I've not redeemed you. Jesus has redeemed you. I mean, God made you. 
God made all of us. Jesus has redeemed all of us, and we are gathered together. Therefore, this changes how we relate to one another because you belong to Jesus, not me. Therefore, grace is not mine to keep because it's not my grace. It's grace that's been given from Jesus. And you are not mine to keep or to do anything with. I just have to extend grace to you because you belong to Jesus and I belong to Jesus. That changes everything. It's amazing because we are experiencing the fullness of him who fills all in all. I just, that statement is just like wrecking my brain. Gathered together as the church, the redeemed, the chosen ones who are experiencing adoption and blessing and redemption and forgiveness and holiness together, the church, the body, we are experiencing together the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's so exciting. And lastly, I'll say this. This changes how we do what we call here, we call it mission. But you can call it evangelism. You can call it loving service to people. Whatever you want to call it. How we treat other people who are not yet gathered, or not yet in the body. or People who are non-Christians, non-believers, we love and serve because we realize that we are instruments of his grace for restoration and renewal. I mean, if God is the Father of glory, he, he's created everyone and everything all the time, and he says, people are my image bearers. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm redeeming everybody, and I now have all authority, all rule, all power, and by my life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and sitting at the right hand of God the Father, I'm going to redeem those broken people who were made in the image of God, but now they're broken. And Jesus says, I have all that authority. And then he says, look, I'm going to pour that into the church a little bit here to fill all in all. We, that changes how we treat non-Christians. And that, that changes, that should, change, that should drive us to, pa- like I want to run out of here screaming right now and just find somebody and say, are you a Christian? You're not, let me love you. Let me tell you about the God who made you. Let me tell you about the Jesus who can redeem you and who can change you. And Oh man, this would change everything for us if we just let this sink in, that we are the recipients of the fullness of Christ who fills all in all. I mean, that changes everything. Everything. And it's good news. Because God is sovereign and good. He is great. He is good. We can trust him in all areas of life. So, uh, in conclusion, I'll just say this. Trust him. And if you're not trusting him, if you're not having ongoing faith, ongoing belief, repent and trust him. If you're not a Christian, you've never believed in Jesus, I'm begging you to consider, and by the Holy Spirit, may he change your mind, change your heart, to bring you to repentance, to trust and believe in Jesus. If you are a Christian, like me, we need to repent of not trusting and believing Jesus because disobedience is not trusting, not believing that Christ is sovereign. When we take things into our own hands, we're failing to believe that Jesus is Lord over all creation all the time. With our relationships, our money, our salvation, whatever it may be. So, moral of the story, everybody, God is great, God is good. Let's all repent and trust Jesus, shall we? Amen. God, thank you so much for this morning to open your word. Uh, God, it's mind-blowing. Your, your scriptures are so thick and so rich with your goodness toward your people. God, as a loving father who is chasing down wayward children, as a loving husband who is chasing down your wayward bride, you are such a good and great, almighty, powerful, wonderful, beautiful God. And we thank you that in your goodness you rescue us. We thank you for the person and work of Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you lived the perfect life, died a death in our place, that you uh, rose again and are seated at the right hand of God, the Father God, that, that, that you as our Savior 
have all power, all might, all control, all authority, all dominion, that we do not belong to ourselves anymore, but we belong to you. And that you've gathered us to experience this fulfillment of your promises, that you were filling us with your presence and your grace. God, may we never take that for granted, that you would uh, wreck the obstacles in our lives that cause us to, that, that cause us to fail to see your greatness and goodness. God, I pray that as we reflect on your scriptures, the, the whole first chapter of Ephesians, Lord, I pray that we would meditate on what we've heard for the past 12 weeks and that, 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 we would, uh, that it would soak deep within our minds and our hearts, God, that you would transform us personally, that you would transform us as a community, as your church, as your gathered uh, representation of your body and, called redemption. And, and Lord, that we would experience that uh, fullness that you promise and that we would experience this uh, passion to believe, to trust you ongoingly, relationally with each other in love and covenant faithfulness as brothers and sisters, God, that we would be spurred on with passion to pursue and serve those who do not yet know you to the end that they would know you. God, that you would save many for your glory and our joy God, we ask that you do this in Christ's name. Amen.